0: All right, as you make your way back to your seat, would you remain standing, please? I'm going to read God's Word for us as we prepare to look into it from Acts chapter 2. It's a picture of the ecclesia lifestyle of the very first church. Listen, please, as I read the Word. They devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would you join hands with those around you as I pray for us this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you for forming a forever family and through your death and resurrection making it possible. We ask now that the Holy Spirit would speak to the people of God in this place in a clear way, in an unmistakable way, that we might carry out your mission in the world in the way you'd have us to do this. And I offer this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And you can take your seat. And as you do, I want to point out... Uh, Dr. Ron and Lori Robertson right over here on my left. Wave at us, you guys. Pastor Brian's parents who are visiting with us from Louisville and have been supporters and encouragers of this ministry since day one. So thank you all, and God bless you. Great to see you today. Well, you know, we're talking about the church, right? The church. And, you know, sometimes if you want to figure out how something is really supposed to work, or how something is really supposed to look, you go back to the original, you go back to the prototype, the model, and that's really what we're doing in this series, right? We're traveling back, 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 back to the first century to get a clear picture in our minds of that very first ecclesia, the church at Jerusalem, the one that the risen Jesus himself started through his disciples, and in doing that, what we're seeking to do is identify the, the, the timeless marks or characteristics of the church that we can then bring forward here into our context in the 21st century and pattern our ecclesia after. Last weekend, I gave you an acrostic, which I admittedly borrowed from Pastor Mark Driscoll, but I think it serves us well and it will help this be memorable for us. And if you want to pull out your study guide, it's on there, it's The acrostic Jesus Church, J-E-S-U-S space C-H-U-R-C-H. And last weekend, we got to the first two, so we made a good start of it. And J, we saw, stands for Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching. And E stands for what? Do you remember? Well, you don't have to remember. It's there on your outline, right? (laughs) Emotional worship, as it says that that church was filled with awe, and was praising God, and that's the language of worship. And so we're going to pick up right there today with the letter S, so J-E-S, and this stands for Saved Church Members. A mark of Jesus' church is that the members of his church are saved people. Acts 2.41 says those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being what? Saved. 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 So the big idea here is Jesus' people, which is the biblical notion that some people belong to Jesus and are members of his forever family. And who are they? Well, they're described here as those who have accepted the message, the gospel message, Those who are, as it says, saved. So saved church members, Jesus' church is comprised of people who are genuinely saved, who are Christians. Now, we know that God loves everyone, right? His heart is big enough to love everyone. We know Jesus died for everyone's sins. But not everyone has repented of their sins and believed the good news and accepted the gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for them on the cross. You need to know that in God's eyes, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. And it's not us good people and all those bad people, okay? Everyone you know, everyone you meet is either saved or not saved. Redeemed or lost. Reconciled to God through Jesus Christ or enemies of God due to their sin. You need to know that the Bible does not speak of a third neutral category called undecided. You see, to be undecided is to remain an enemy of God because no one is born into this world righteous. In fact, the Bible says that people are born what? Sinners, alienated from God. We read it earlier in in the reading that John led us in. That all of Adam's race is by nature under God's divine judgment. You know, Jesus himself once said that people are either for him or against him. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. And so, if you are one who has truly repented of your sins and embraced Jesus' sacrifice for you, then you are one of Jesus' people, saved from coming judgment, a member of Jesus' family, but if not, I would urge you today to read the Bible. You know, we're blessed in this country to have Bibles. You saw on the, on the video how France, very few people have Bibles. We're blessed to have Bibles all over the place, even online, even on our phones. Read the Bible and discover there all that Jesus Christ has done for you to make you right with God. You know, he's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the heavy lifting. And when you discover that, humble your heart and gladly, by faith, receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord so you can be a member of Jesus' church and one of his people. And so what we see in the book of Acts all throughout is that the true church of Jesus has members who are genuine Christians. Now, that does not mean that everybody who sits in a church service like this is a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes someone a car even today. You may be here today as a favor to someone, or you lost a bet and now you had to come to church, or maybe you're a curious seeking person who's, who's genuinely checking out church and Christ and Christianity. No matter what your background or your past or your, or your race or your religious background, you are welcome in this worship service. We are glad that you're here Jesus' church works like this. Some things are open to everyone. everyone. Other things are reserved for Jesus' people. For example, worship gatherings like this, open to everyone? Yes. All are welcome. Small group participation, open to everyone, right? Church membership, reserved for Jesus' people. Baptism, reserved for Jesus' people. Communion, reserved for Jesus' people. So if you're not yet a member of a local church, as a pastor, I hope and pray that you will become one soon. If you've been attending celebrations here, we would urge you to go ahead and take our first step towards becoming a church member, which is to take our Discover New Life class. It's offered every month. The next one is offered next Sunday night, the 25th, and in that class, you'll learn what this church is all about, what we believe. What makes us tick? What gets us up in the morning? What drives all of our ministry and mission activity? And you get to meet Pastor Claude, and that's worth the price of admission right there. You'll find out what church membership here entails, and you'll get the information that you need to make a well-informed decision about that. My conviction is that every Christian needs to get planted in a local church and start to put down roots. You know, in our culture, it's very easy to adopt a consumer mindset towards the church, isn't it? And to just kind of go around from church to church and pick and choose different things that you like in different churches. But that's not what Jesus wants. It's not what we see in the scriptures. So I encourage you, if you're a Christian, to make a decision and join a church. Now, we think this is a pretty good one right here. But if not here, then ask Jesus to lead you to another of his churches and sink down some roots there. So as a pastor, I would, I would look at you and urge you to not be a free agent, okay? To not be a free agent, to don't just bounce around from church to church to church to church. Resist the temptation to be a sporadic attender of worship services that just shows up every now and then when you feel like it. Be a devoted member of a gospel-centered, Jesus-loving Spirit-led, local, ecclesia, church. That's what Jesus wants. That's what his church needs you to be. And I'm telling you, that's where the joy is. That's where the joy is. So the big question here is, are you saved? Are you saved? And are you a member of a local church? Saved church members. It says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, J-E-S-U, what do you think the U stands for? Underwater baptism, U, right? So underwater baptism, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So when I envisioned that scene, I actually felt some pity for the poor guy who was doing the baptizing. 3,000 souls, 3,000 baptisms. Maybe they did tag team baptizing that day to give the guys a rest. I don't know. You'd certainly need a massage and a good long nap after that. What an exciting day that was, going down to the river and dunking thousands of new believers in Jesus. The first thing that Jesus calls his people to do once they've repented and trusted him for salvation is to be publicly baptized. Baptism, as you probably know, is an outward expression or symbol of an inward transformation. It's going public with your heartfelt love and devotion for Jesus. And for centuries, baptism has been the ID badge for followers of Christ. As I said earlier, baptism is only for Christians. An unbeliever who gets baptized is wet. I mean, that's basically it. But the Christian who submits to underwater baptism is signifying that their sins have already been washed away, not by the waters of the baptistry, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, putting their faith in his sacrifice. So, the big theological idea of baptism is union with Christ. Union with Christ. And that's a glorious concept that means that when a believer is baptized, he or she is acknowledging that they are one with Christ and that in a spiritual sense they died with Christ, were buried with Christ, and were raised with Christ now to live a new life in him and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? They're declaring that they have died to their old self-centered, self-focused way of living and have been raised now to live a life for the glory and fame of Jesus, loving Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbor as themselves. I imagine that some of you in this room today need to take this important step of being baptized. Now, when we talk about baptism, two questions often come up on this topic. The first is, If I was baptized as a baby, as an infant, Pastor Steve, do I need to be baptized again now that I believe in Christ? My answer? Yep. If you want to follow the Bible, yes. Did you know that there is no infant baptism in the Bible? If you were baptized as a baby, as I know many of you were, my view is that what happened to you is that your parents did what they were taught and they had you sprinkled out of the good intentions of their heart. And there's nothing wrong with that. But technically speaking, that was not Christian baptism. Okay? The very word baptize in the original means to dip, to dunk, to submerge. It was used in ancient Greek literature of a ship out on the high seas that capsized and sunk to the bottom. It was baptized. In the New Testament, when someone became a Christian, they always went to a river or looked for a body of water where there was plenty of water. Why? Because they knew that baptism involved taking people down under the water and bringing them back up again, picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask would you do that to a little baby? No! Pastor Steve, why don't we baptize infants? A, it's not in the Bible, B, it's child abuse. You know, we got little baby Susie here, a little flower in her hair. Parents are standing there. We dunk her under the water. They're like, "Whoa! Oh, what are you doing? So no, it's not good. So if you are someone who was sprinkles as an infant, I say be grateful that you had parents who cared about your spiritual condition. But I would urge you, now that you've believed the gospel for yourself and made your own decision about this, to go ahead and be baptized by immersion in water, especially now that you understand the meaning better. The second related question is, okay then, well, when are my children old enough to be baptized? That's a good question, isn't it? The Bible does not give a minimum baptism age, leaves it up to the leadership of each local church, to search the scriptures and decide about this based on scriptural principles. And so this gives me the opportunity to talk for a minute about something that our pastors have been discussing together over the course of the last year or so. Because of how the Bible talks about baptism and what it is and what it means and what it represents, our pastors here are feeling more and more that the decision to be baptized should be made by someone who understands the gospel of Jesus well and can articulate it in a fairly mature and coherent fashion. As I said, the Bible doesn't give a specific minimum age for baptism. For years here at New Life, we've used a general guideline of age seven, believing that even young children can trust in Jesus. Amen? and not wanting to hinder those who desire it from taking this step. Recently, we've started to feel more strongly that we should encourage parents and children to wait until at least age 10. Not a hard and fast rule, but a a guideline. Say why. Well, to be as sure as we can that the truths of the gospel are able to be comprehended from the standpoint of cognitive development. And to make the experience as meaningful as possible for every child who wants to follow Jesus. I would say no matter what your child's age, if they are understanding the gospel more and more and starting to talk to you as a parent about their desire to be baptized, bring them to our monthly baptism class. Just bring them to the class. And there we will lay out for them the the scriptural practice of being baptized, what it is, what it means, and they'll even take a field trip field trip to the baptistry minus the water kind of you know take, out, take away some of the anxiety that can be associated with being baptized it's a good thing we also have a pamphlet our children's ministries have produced that you can pick up as a parent and take home and you can it'll help you talk with your son or daughter who's curious about salvation about baptism and explain it to them with clarity so you can make a good decision about when is the right time to get baptized. Now, if you're a teen who loves Jesus and has trusted in Christ, if you're an adult believer in Jesus and you've not yet been baptized, we would love to dunk you here at New Life Church. We don't have to go to a river somewhere or the creek out here. We have a baptistry, nice warm water. We would love to dunk you. We will even promise to bring you back up out of the water. 28 years, we've lost no one No one yet. You would be following the example of the Lord Jesus who was baptized, even though he didn't need to be. But as our example and as our leader, he went before us. He set the pace for us in doing this. Aren't you glad to be following a leader who does what he asks his people to do? It's the badge of Christian discipleship. It gives you the opportunity to publicly testify of your faith in Jesus Christ as he calls us to do, and it symbolizes that spiritual union that you have with Christ. Now, I should say that we do not believe, the Bible teaches, that baptism is required for salvation. Salvation, the scriptures say over and over again, is not of works. There's nothing you or I could do to earn our salvation, not even being baptized. It's not required for salvation, but neither do the scriptures portray it as some optional practice that you can kind of take or leave. It's a humbling act, it's one of the two ordinances of the church, and it is important. So the big question I want to ask you is, have you been baptized by immersion in water since you first trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? if, If not, and you'd like to be baptized, you can just check the little box on your card that says interested in baptism, and we'll get information to you. J-E-S-U-S. Say, what's that? Sin repenting. Sin repenting. Acts 2.38, Peter's message, first word, and Peter said to them, repent. Repent. Now, I'll admit, this is a bit controversial. Repentance, I'm glad to go on record as one who believes that repenting of sin is required to be saved. I mean, John the Baptist's primary message was repent, Jesus' message was repent, Peter's message was repent, Paul's message was repent, Acts 17.30 says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. (laughs) So I believe that repentance is a necessary response when hearing the gospel to be included in Jesus' people. But not only that, I'm in the same camp with Martin Luther and a lot of other notable people who believe that repentance is to be an ongoing lifestyle with Christians. That we keep repenting. That was the first of his 95 theses that he nailed to that church door. The first one was Jesus intended for repentance to be a lifestyle with his people. You know, when you read the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, what you see there is Jesus, the head of the church, walking through his churches and his people, walking among them, commending them for their obedience, promising them rewards, correcting their sin... And calling them, Christians, to repent. In Jesus' church, Jesus' people are regularly repenting of sin. The truth about them is they are sinning less. But when they do slip up, and that's what sin is for a true Christian. It's a slip up. It's a mess up. When they do slip up, they experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you're like me, you're miserable until you confess and repent not to be saved again not to be justified all over again that matter has been taken care of pardon is for all sins past present and future but to be restored to that close walk with the father that's why we confess and repent just realize if if you struggle with this and we do confession now in our church services and I know some of you have struggled with that just realize that confession and repentance among Christians has been going on for 2,000 years I mean, read the early church fathers. Read Augustine, read Luther, Jonathan Edwards, read Whitfield and Wesley and Spurgeon. I was watching an old Billy Graham classic sermon the other night on TBN, and he said the same thing. He called non-Christians to repent of their sin to be saved, and he called upon sinning Christians to repent of their sins to be restored to a close fellowship with the Father. So let me say it very clearly. One key evidence that someone is a true Christian is a sensitivity to sin in their lives and the willingness to turn away from it when they see how much it grieves Jesus. The Apostle John wrote this in his letter, whoever is born of God cannot continue in sin. If someone claims to be saved, professes to be a Christian, but is unwilling to give up a sinful practice, lifestyle because they just love their sin too much, then the Bible would call upon them to examine themselves to see if they're really in the faith. Because Jesus died to save us from sin. You see, if you're a genuine Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and he becomes grieved when you fall into sin, and he will prick your conscience. You ever had that happen? He'll prick your conscience to let you know that that lifestyle or that attitude or behavior is out of line with the gospel that you say that you believe. And if you continue in it, if you continue in it without repenting, the Father in heaven, the Bible tells us, will discipline you if you are a true child of God. That's Hebrews chapter 12. And so I worry about some people. I worry about some people who claim to be Christians, claim to be believers, and they're living in open sin And they don't receive any discipline from God, I worry about them because it says the Lord disciplines every child whom He receives. And so I would say, if that describes you, pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the discipline of God to come so that you will repent. Your baptism signified that you participated in a death to sin. And a deep desire of all true followers of Jesus is to live in such a way that reflects his holy character. Did he not say, be holy for I am holy? And so repent. Call your sin what it is. Name it. Turn away from it and claim the blood of Jesus once again as your only hope of cleansing and your only power to live in the truth of who you really are. And so the big theological idea here is Jesus holiness and the big question is is there any sin in your life that Jesus is calling you to repent of we need to think about that don't we so let's review the marks of Jesus church so far Jesus centered Bible preaching and teaching emotional worship saved church members underwater baptism sin repenting now the first sea in church What do you think that stands for? Any guesses? Communion. Communion. Verse 42, they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And most scholars agree that the phrase breaking of bread likely refers to the communion meal, commonly called the Lord's table or the Eucharist, communion. And those first disciples... Would have recalled just a few weeks before sitting with Jesus in a hot, muggy upper room and hearing Jesus give new meaning to the traditional Passover meal that Jews had been observing for hundreds of years. Jesus lifted up those elements, didn't he? And he told them that the bread, from that point on, the broken bread would now represent what? This is my body body that would shortly be cut to ribbons by Roman whips as Jesus would suffer for the sins of the world. And then he held up the goblet of wine and he said, this is my blood which would within a few hours flow from bleeding wounds and be spilled out on the ground and would actually constitute the purchase price for our forgiveness and our salvation." So, take this bread, he said, and take this cup and do this in remembrance of me. That's what he said. And so now, this new ecclesia would commence the practice of gathering regularly around a table to remember Jesus' cross on Calvary's mountain, where their Savior Jesus had suffered and died a horrific and humiliating death. That's the big theological idea here it's the cross of Christ. Honored and commemorated by communion. Whenever Jesus' people would observe this ordinance down through the ages, they would be reminded that they were a purchased people. They would partake of the elements and they would remind themselves, we're bought. We're purchased. We belong to someone. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We are His. We are His covenant people. We bear His name. We're part of His family recipients of divine grace and they would pledge their loyalty and allegiance to him forever and as a matter of course before partaking of the elements Christians down through the ages would first ask the Holy Spirit to shine his searchlight on their hearts and say reveal to me what's in my heart that needs to be repented of pockets of pride Sin, resentment, hatred for a brother or a sister or a parent or a child, lust, adultery, immorality, unrighteous anger. Holy Spirit, show me my sin. Let me see it in all of its ugliness so I can be disgusted with it and see how it grieves Jesus and confess it and turn away from it and be cleansed once again from the pollution and contamination of sin. In my heart through his blood and embrace the cross once again as our only hope of ever seeing God face to face so Jesus said commemorate my death in this way until I come back right and that has led believers through the ages to be reminded whenever we partake of communion that one day we will sit at a great banquet table did you know that Heaven is often portrayed in the Bible as a huge feast. Yay! (laughs) I mean, doesn't that sound good? A sumptuous meal with all of the family of Jesus gathered there, and our Savior there, enjoying fellowship and communion with Him at the great banquet feast of the ages. And when we partake of communion, we're reminded of that day, and He said, Partake of this until I come back. And we say, Lord, come. Come back. We long to see you. It stirs up our anticipation. And so the big question on this one is, do you regularly participate in observing the Lord's table as Jesus instructed his followers to do? Now, we observe that about 10 times a year in this setting, in our weekend worship gatherings, as we will do in a few moments. We also do it in our small groups. In fact, this week, if you're in a small group, You're encouraged to, because we're talking about this this weekend, to observe the Lord's table together in that group of 5 or 8 or 10 or 12 people who are precious to you. Are you regularly participating in the Lord's table? Well, that's where we'll stop this week, okay? So that means that next weekend we have what? Hurch. So we'll be having Hurch together next weekend. Through that very first church in Jerusalem, Jesus gave us a prototype, a model, a pattern to follow as his ecclesia. Now, I want to say this before we partake of communion. I know that in a group this size, a percentage of you have in your life been hurt by the church. Am I right? I'm surprised at the number of people I meet who've been hurt by church, by church leader. These people are not leaving, by the way. They're getting ready to serve you communion, okay? <laughs> They'll be coming up back up the aisle in just a few moments with trays. I want to say, I've been hurt by the church. I'm a pastor. <laughs> There's no doubt that the pattern has often gotten distorted, has often gotten marred. But I want to say this to you as a pastor. Don't give up on the church Don't give up on the church. Despite its imperfections, the church remains exceedingly precious to Jesus. And despite its flaws, it's still his only plan for taking his good news to the world. There is no plan B. We're at it. It's precious to him. So please, don't give up on the church. And if there's forgiveness that you need to grant to some pastor or church leader or leader in the church, I pray That God gives you the grace to forgive them, even if they've never asked for your forgiveness. That would be a true picture of gospel grace, would it not? Lord, I release them. (laughs) Because I'm telling you, as long as you're holding on to that woundedness, there's some blockage this way in your relationship with God. So God, give us that grace, and always remember that one day we will be presented to Christ without any blemishes, without any stains, minus our sin and selfishness and pride, but clothed only in the white robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a church without spot, without wrinkle, a glorious church for Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. So in this moment, we thought it would be appropriate to share communion together and so I encourage you to begin preparing your hearts for that and for those of you who are not Christians this is your opportunity to become one seriously right now to just turn from your sin and selfish lifestyle give your life to Jesus Christ embrace the good news that he gave his life for you he took your place he served your sentence he experienced the judgment and wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to And then rose from the grave so he could give you life. Trust in Jesus. Then you can take communion as one of Jesus' people, which is what he intended. And if you are a believer here today, if you are a Christian, then this is an opportunity to examine your heart like we talked about. Repent of any known sins. Thank Jesus once again for suffering and dying for you. And rejoice in his forgiveness in making you one of his people. And remind yourself of the great promise you will see him one day. So let's bow our heads together. And Lord Jesus, I pray that these next few moments would be special as you grace us with a special measure of your presence. May the Holy Spirit be free now to move among your people, to convict as is necessary, to comfort and encourage as is necessary. We honor you now by remembering that your sacrifice as you commanded your followers to do. These next moments are yours. These folks will be serving communion. I ask that you take the elements and then hold them if you will and I'll come back up in a few moments and we'll partake together.